Thank you, Willard, for leading us in the reading of God's Word. Well, good morning. I'm excited to uh, be sharing with you today. We are at the hinge point of the letter to the Ephesians. And what I mean by the hinge point is Ephesians has six chapters, or it's broken up into six chapters, and the first three are about identity. And um, so we've been in the three chapters about identity, and now we're just coming into chapter four, which begins a brand new part. Um, We're going to move from identity to action, from identity in Christ or identity in, like, who, who we are because of what Christ has done in our lives, from identity in Christ to the actions that flow out of that identity. Because God knows the way he made us, and the way that he made us is that our strongest actions flow out of our identity. The way that you see yourself is the stuff that you will flow in most naturally. And so uh, Paul, who writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he spends three chapters really establishing that identity. And so if you go back the number of messages we've had already, they've all been really in that area. But now... It's, it's the shift. It's like the hinge in the door. It's like we've been looking at one side of the door about identity, identity. You are this because of what Christ has done. And then it's, it, the door is now flipping to the other side, and the other side is, what do you do out of that? Right? Ephesians is a power-packed book. Uh, pound for pound and inch for inch, it might be one of the most influential books in the Bible. You have other books that maybe historically are more influential, but they're much longer. Like Psalms is very influential, but much longer book. John is a very influential book. And Acts and Romans. So probably those are, probably people might list those as maybe the top four books that have had impact on who the church is today. But Ephesians is a great summary of the gospel. It's a great summary of God's story and how it impacts our story. It's, uh, it tells us that there's been a change of status in our lives. If you are a believer in Christ, if you put your faith in him, you're trusting in what he's done for you, then you have a change in status. Now it's our responsibility to make choices that reflect that change adequately. In other words, we're we're looking at God what God's given us a new identity. How do we make the best of that? Or how do we live our lives that line up with that? And so the book of Ephesians tells us who we are, what we're meant for, and how to live it out. In other words, How our new identity in Christ shapes a new life. It shapes a new life. So now before I get too far into this, I want to just say uh, hello to our online church family. Thanks for joining us today, wherever you're joining us from. if, you, know, I, you missed the greeting time, you know, being here, but there's some greeting you can do online. I'm going to give you a question that you can chat about in your online, and that is, what drew you to Hillcrest? Simply that. What drew you to Hillcrest? It's actually a question that I've asked many times at membership classes. If people come to a membership class, I want to know. What drew you to this church? What attracted you to this church? What were the things that um, caused you to come here and be curious and to start to connect? And um, let me just quickly ask a question. How many of you have ever shopped for a church? And now, you might not like the phrase, but just, you know, you know the idea. You were looking for a church family. Have you ever had a chance in your life where you actually attended a few different churches or checked out their websites, and then you had to make a decision which one you go to? Just get a raise of hands again. You, you had to do that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, 
then I'd be curious to know what drew you to Hillcrest? How did you end up here? And um, so I've had lots of things that people have shared at membership class to sort of give me an idea of some of the common reasons. Maybe you, how many of you said, I came here and I, and I liked the worship and that was an influencing factor for me coming back. How many of you say that? That was an influencing factor for you. Okay. How about um, the teaching? We got a great teaching team here. How many of you guys came and you said, the teaching, that actually influenced me in my choosing this to be my church? Okay, great. Thanks for your feedback. How about um, specific ministries? You say, well, they had this ministry or that ministry, and that really, that's why I joined. Anyone? That was a reason why you joined Hillcrest? Okay. Um, how about the attitude or the uh, things we do for the city? How, how many think that was a factor for you? Okay. Okay. Um, how about this church just felt like your old church, which is from another town? <laughs> okay. Uh, what about the youth group? Yeah, that was a factor. How about, yeah, how about children's ministry? Yeah, we have a great youth group and children's ministry. How many for you, it was, it was more, it was deeper than that. It was our theological positions that actually, or a statement of faith, something like that. I mean, that actually was a factor. You know, it, it, it mattered. Okay, not the only factor maybe, but it mattered. How about somebody just brought you, somebody included you right away. How many, that was a factor. You came and you stayed because someone brought you or they included you, okay. Um, how about people were friendly when you came? That was a factor. Okay, good. How about um, you grew up in this church? You've just never left. <laughs> okay, my own kids. All right. <laughs> um, how about a pretty girl or a handsome guy was a factor in you choosing this church? Anyone? Anyone? Oh, you're admitting. <laughs> you're raising your wife's hand for her. That's very. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to talk to her when on her own and see if that's true. All right. Um, how about there was an opportunity to get involved in something important to you here at Hellcrest? Oh, yeah, many of you. Okay. How about just the people felt like your kind of people? Anyone? That was a factor? Okay. Um, how about it was easy to be noticed here? How about it was easy to stay unnoticed here? <laughs> that's, I know that's a real one for a lot of people. They want to come to a church where it's like, I can just check it out for a while and nobody knows I'm here. Well, sometimes they get away with that. That's great. Um, what else? Uh, how about you just, you can't really put your finger on it totally, but you just felt drawn to Hillcrest. How many, you had that? You just, okay. Wow. How, okay, here's a good one. How many, you didn't want to come to this church, but God made it clear you should. Anyone? Okay. All right. I've never had the privilege of shopping for a church. I've never got to shop for a church. So I've basically four churches in my life. From like kindergarten to age 18, I went to the church my mom and dad took me to. So I had a home church growing up in Manitoba. And then when I was in college, I spent four years or three or four years going to the the church all my college friends went to. We all went to the same church for that number of years. Again, didn't really pick it. Just, I didn't shop around. Just that was the, that was the one option. And then um, after college, I was invited by a pastor to go to Nippon, Saskatchewan, and uh, be the youth pastor in a church there for eight years. And then uh, I was in, after that, I was invited to come here and to serve at this church. Uh, and I have uh, 
my wife, last week actually was 20 years that we've been a part of the Hillcrest Church family. So 20 years ago last week, so October 1st, my wife and I and our four-month-old baby boy came and joined Hillcrest Church. And you know, I was feeling a little bit nostalgic about it. And so I, I wrote you a tiny song about it. Kurt, are you around? Can you help me out? All right. It's a tiny song, just to let you know. <clears throat> and my voice isn't, you know, the greatest, not, not smooth and silky like Kurt's, but, but I wrote you a song. All right. All right. That was my intro? That was good. I was just enjoying it. Okay, let's start again. Come listen to my story about a man named Steve. His family lived in Nippowin and didn't want to leave. And then one day he took a call from Kent. Hillcrest was looking for a youth pastor to rent. Just kidding. Church jokes. Humor me. Well, the next thing you know, Steve and Marnie started to see that God might be in this unexpectedly. The kinfolk said, ask God and try to hear, then obey God with whatever he makes clear. Leave our friends, sell our house, trust God. We had a little baby, God said it's time for us to grow. Why can't we just stay here? Pretty sure he's saying no. I got some folks in Moose Jaw. You're going to love, you'll see. So we found a rider truck and moved to Wood Lily. Drive, that is. Apartment living. One bathroom. But the Hillcrest family. Now it's time to say we're so blessed by our church family. Your love for God, your love for us, and gracious harmony. Your teamwork makes the dream work, and we're all beneficiaries. It's been 20 years. You've persevered. Thanks for raising me. I mean, is there anything Kurt Buchanan can't play on the guitar? That's amazing. So set a spell, take your shoes off, and let's get back to talking about church from the perspective of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now you're saying, boy, that was just a waste of time, Steve. Well, I wanted to get to the final line. Thanks for raising me. Thanks for raising me. You know, I've spent 20 years in this church, and I spent eight... My mom is here this morning. She spent, I spent 18 years in mom and dad's house and 20 years here. So my mom is feeling really good about this right now because now the responsibility for raising me is more shared by you than it is by her. She's less responsible. She's praising the Lord for that. She's washing her hands of, my, <laughs> of me. 
But I say thank for, thanks for raising me because that's what churches do. Churches are meant to raise people into spiritual maturity. That's what they do. They're meant to do. And in fact, we're all called to play a role in raising each other. You know, when we, I, I, you know, I started with talking about shopping for a church. It's a really strange phrase. I think if you told the Apostle Paul, yeah, nowadays we shop for churches, he would find it totally foreign. And it reflects, I mean, it reflects a few dynamics in our culture um, that when you bring them to the church aren't very healthy. So we're in, in the North American culture, one of our strong values is individualism. And I talked about how in many, in many ways it's a good, there's some good things that have come out of that. You're not just uh, beholden to play certain roles forever in uh, traditional culture that you maybe grew up in. There is a little more freedom for the individual to branch out and to try new things. But we are living in an age where that individualism has gone a long ways past just that and to a point where we really are looking at the life through, through me-colored glasses. What's in it for me might be a great tagline for the individualism that exists today. And you couple that with another value, which is consumerism, right? The customer is always, they're always right. So what's in it for me? The customer is always right. And you know, if those two had an evil baby... It would be customization. Customization. You go to Subway, you tell them exactly how to make your sandwich. You order an iPhone, you get to select all the different features. Well, that might work for in, in a way in the world, but when you bring an attitude, you're saying, well, you know what? Like McDonald's has the tagline, have it your way. When we think we bring that attitude that we might have in, a, in response to businesses or, or our culture, our consumer culture around us, and we bring it to the church, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because we believe that customization says, the world should adapt to me. And then, even worse, the church should adapt to me. I should be able to have it my way. And this leads to sick churches. It leads to sick churches. I had a doctor friend I was chatting with this week, and um, not one of the doctors that attends Hillcrest, but good friend. Uh, we initially got to know each other because our, our sons both played on the same soccer team. And so we had lots of sideline chats um, before I even knew he was a doctor and before he knew I was a pastor, and because we were talking about soccer strategy and all these things. Anyhow, he asked me just re this last week, he said, how did you do through... Um, through COVID. How did you do through COVID, like just personally? And um, he says, I, I heard that, you know, a number of churches sort of struggled through COVID. And uh, so that must have been really hard on you being a pastor. And I said, you know what, I, I can tell you more personally about how I did. I, you know, the tail of the tape is basically, I started really tired when COVID hit and uh, needed a little bit of help to really get going. But over the two years, I started to get feeling better and better. And, you know, so I told him my, my personal story, but I said, the story of our church is different. I think our church did very well in COVID, considering they weren't perfect, nobody was. Every organization felt the stress and pressure. If you were in a leadership team anywhere in the city or anywhere, you felt the pressure. 
Uh, if you're a in a group anywhere in the city, you felt the pressure. If you're in a, even your family probably felt the pressure. But I said, I felt like our church did really well. In fact, I was very blessed to be leading a church that managed um, to have a gracious unity and a gracious care for one another during COVID. And so I said, well, I don't know that I aced COVID, but I think my church did. I think you guys did very well. But it's easy for things to go the other way. If you have a have-it-your-own-way attitude when it comes to the church, you'll start seeing some, some sicknesses showing up. And when your tendency is to make life about me and not us, well, then we struggle to love. One of the commands of Scripture is to, in the New Testament teaching was to, to love each other deeply. Well, we'll struggle to love deeply if we're just wanting to have it our own way. Another reason why we struggle to love deeply is we haven't experienced how much God loves for us, loves us, because that's sort of the, that's the, the beginning place for us being able to love well is to be loved well by God. Another symptom of, of this sickness in churches is our lesser identities cause us to divide because we aren't focused on our greater uniting and unifying identity. And let me give you one more. We'll use, we use truth as a weapon when I want it my way. Or we withhold truth out of indifference. We don't care enough to share the truth instead of offering it in love for someone else's maturity. So you get division, you get immaturity, you'll get deception and false teaching, you get a scenario where nobody's willing to serve. This is, this is the struggle that I think the scriptures of Paul, this Ephesians 4 passage is meant to address. How do we prevent churches from becoming sick places? Well, it, it starts from addressing the sickness that's in our culture where we want it to be about me. So imagine that you took that same attitude for, to other things that are very relational. Like, I mean, I understand if you take a customization, individualism, consumerism attitude to Walmart, but the church is not Walmart. In fact, the church is more like a family than it is like Walmart. So imagine if you, we changed the shopping for a church. By the way, I'm not blaming you for raising your hand. I would thank you for participating in the shopping for the church thing. I'm just saying the phrase is wrong. I introduced it, so it's, I'm just addressing it's a product of our culture. Imagine shopping for a spouse. Hey, Billy, what are you up to nowadays? I'm shopping for a spouse. You're shopping for a spouse? You mean you're shopping for a spouse? That doesn't sound right. Imagine shopping for a family. Yeah, just shopping for a family. I'm, you know, interviewing different families, sort of see, you know, which one has the most for me. And then at the end, I'll choose one of those families who gets to have me. Doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound quite right, but people bring that approach to the church and say, well, the church is just a service provider instead of a family. So, I love, years ago I heard Brian Heaney here say this uh, comment. He said, marriages are like this, but I think churches can be like this too. If you're both just coming to get, or you're all just coming to get what you can get out of it, it's like having too many ticks 
and no dog. I think that picture helps us. You don't want the church to be too many ticks and no dog. Even the thought of even what we say, we say this is our church service. But have we ever stopped to ask who the service is for? Uh, who are we serving? Like, what, is, what does the church exist for? Yeah, well, our, mainly our ser- th- we come to serve the Lord. We come to worship the Lord. That's, that's the first thing the church exists for, is to respond back to God for, how, for what he has done in our lives. Now, secondarily, and out of that comes the nurture that we are meant to have for each other. So the church is supposed to be a place of worship. We minister to the Lord first. Then we minister to each other next. Then we minister to the world by bringing the gospel message and by bringing acts of mercy into the world. So the church is, ministers to the Lord, ministers to each other, and ministers to the world. And it's a, it's, a, it's a pillar of truth in our culture. Paul said that in his letter to Timothy, that it's, it's, a, it's a pillar of I think he uses the word in old English word was buttress. But anyhow, it's a solid, it's a place where you can get solid truth. It is a, a stabilizing influence in the world. So imagine coming to that and saying, what do I get out of it? What do I get out of it? The surprise for us when we read Ephesians is about, and find out it's about identity first, is that you'd think that, okay, it's about identity, so then really this book is going to tell me about me. You know what? I had a real debate and tug within my own heart about how to even label this series. And at one point I thought it should be called This Is Me. And why? Because I know what kind of culture we live in, and that would be appealing to people who live in individualist culture to say, do you want to know who you are? Come, hear this series about This Is Me. And that, the more I read Ephesians, the more I realized it couldn't say that. Because this is us, is really what Ephesians teaches. It doesn't teach this is me. It teaches this is us. This is who we are, not as much I am. This is us. Imagine, sometimes we have this conversation after coming home from from our service together, remember, a service to the Lord, and then to each other, and then hopefully to the, spilling out to the world. How, how was church? You ever have that conversation? How was church? Uh, I didn't get much out of it. Well, was that the point? Imagine, if, imagine a church where everyone comes ready to contribute, to minister, to give and receive. I think that's the New Testament teaching about the church. We're supposed to come and to love each other, to speak truth for someone else's benefit, and to serve. So, how was church? I didn't get much out of it. Well, did you put much into it? Did you come with an attitude to give? Were, were your, was your radar up for the opportunity to bless somebody else, to serve them, to love them, to speak truth for their benefit? So, I wanted to give a quick clarification. People will say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Hey, that's true. You can come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and never, ever attend a church. That's possible. And here's another one people say, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. 
That's true too. You must have your own personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just the association with church people that makes you a Christian. That's also true. But before we go too far into this, I want to say this clearly. Not being a part of a local body of believers is a completely foreign concept to New Testament teaching. It's totally foreign. Just me and Jesus, that's not the New Testament teaching. Being united with Christ or in Christ, as Ephesians says it, especially in chapter 1, means being united with his body. Romans 12.5 says it. So in Christ, we're in Christ, we're united with Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So we've been saying, Daisy said it, reiterated it, and I think I said it earlier, It's not so much who am I, it's whose am I? Who do I belong to? And we find that we belong to Christ. He has claims on our life because he created us and that he died to redeem us. But that that belonging to Christ also means we belong to other believers. So we in Christ who are many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Here's the second one, Corinthians 12, 27. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. It doesn't get any plainer than that. According to these passages, to be a Christian is to be joined to Christ, and to be joined to be Christ is to be joined to his church. So if someone comes along and says, well, I'm okay with being a part of the universal church, you know, the church that's all the way around the globe, because I'm a Christian, I'm a part of that, but... I'm not really interested in getting involved with the local church. So I want you to just imagine you have um, someone say, I want to be a pilot in the Canadian Air Force, but I don't want to join a visible local group that meets together for training, practice, and deployment as a squadron. How's that going to work? Or you say, "I, I, I want to be... I want to be a football player in the CFL, but I don't want to join a visible local group that meets together for training, practice, and deployment as a team. Or how about someone says, you know, I am a firefighter, but I don't want to join a visible local group that meets together for training, practice, and deployment as a fire crew. I just imagine a guy on his 10-speed with a super soaker looking for smoke, And then he pulls up and squirt, 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 and then the real fire truck shows up. And, you know, his uniform looks pretty good because his mom made it. But really, (laughs) there's something weak about his effect because he isn't part of the team. So that's the... It's a silly notion. It's a bizarre notion that you could be a member of the universal church without joining a visible local church for training, encouragement, and deployment as a body. Local churches are Jesus' passion. Revelation 2 and 3 talks about Jesus is walking through the lampstands of seven churches. These are real churches. And in, as you read that, he's, he's doing several things. He's, um, he's leading them through exhortation. Telling them what they should do. Warning. Watch out for this. Rebuking them. I, I have this against you. Quit doing that. And then commendation. But this is something you're doing really well. 
So Jesus is leading local churches. He's still doing that today. How does he do that? Well, when we give him our attention. I mean, he wants to lead you. In January, we're going we're gonna to walk through uh, some teaching that we walked through several years ago. We're going to walk through the Hearing God Seminar as a church. We're going to do it on Sunday mornings. How, how, can, how can God be the functional Lord of your life? I mean, it's one thing to say he's Lord, but how can he functionally be your Lord of your life? When you sense his nudges, when you, when you, you understand his direction through Scripture and through, and through also uh, Holy Spirit guidance, and you obey. And that's the same for churches. Jesus is interested in leading churches and, and to tell them, hey, I, I commend you for this. Watch out for this. I exhort you to do this. Why? Because Jesus is building a church. I mean, he loves the church. He died for the church. And you know what he's doing for the church? Ephesians 5, uh, 27, 5 and 27. Someone will get this as a passage later on in this series. But I love what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives. Just as, okay, so we're not talking about husbands and wives in this moment. We're going to jump into this, this part. Do it just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and, pre- and to present to her himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Christ loves the church. And with the universal church around the world and with local churches, he is wanting her to grow. He's wanting her to be washed with the word. That's why we come, to, we come together every week to gain common understandings of what the word of God is saying to us. That's what we're doing right now. We get common language, common uh, uh, um, understandings of what God's will is for us so we can walk it out. God's washing his church. He's preparing his church, a church for himself. So here's the church, made to minister to God, made to minister to other believers, made to minister to the world, made to be a pillar of truth in the world. And the church comes with all sorts of great benefits. I'll list a few for them. Uh, if you're part of a church, there's a, there's a level of protection from deception in the, in the local church. In a healthy local church, you experience the presence of God. There's a, there's a unique way and where he is with us when there's two or three gathered and when there's 20 and 30 and there's two and three hundred. Two and three hundred. Experience the presence of God more in the local church. For spiritual growth and maturity is a benefit of the church. It keeps us from cooling off in our love for God. It, there's a protection from Satan and, the, and spiritual attack in the local church. And a healthy church benefits the community which benefits all of us. So those are just a few. There's so many more we could talk about. So we're, I said we're at this hinge point between identity, chapters 1 to 3, and the action that flows out of that identity, chapter 4 to 5. And I think Ephesians 4, verse 1, is the hinge verse of the whole book. So let me read it to you. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, Paul was in prison, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. There's two words I want to zoom in on. Worthy and calling. So worthy, I think, I mean, this is the hinge word. I think the whole book just hinges on this one word. God said you are this. This is your identity, chapter 1 through 3. Now, in light of that, 
in light of who he's made you to be, in light of who you actually are, match that with worthy action. Live a life that matches who you are in your identity in Christ. And when the word worthy is used, I say match, but it's stronger than match because worthy means that there's an elevation to what you're matching. We, we see this in the world. Sometimes we say that politician's actions don't match or are not worthy of the identity that they have, the position that they have. Right? You're not wor- we, 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 you know, we got frustrated with that. You're not worthy of the role that you have. We're not worthy of that uniform that you wear. You're not worthy of that badge or whatever. Those identifying things that say you've been called to a high calling. You've been called to an elevated position. And so every now and again in the news cycle, there's something happens where it's like, no, that's not worthy. It doesn't match. But the Christian has been called to a much higher elevation than all of those positions. So if we're talking about worthy action, we're talking about a high calling. We're we're talking about um, matching something that's very significant in our lives. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So, the dysfunctional church or the, the sick church it's full of unworthy approaches. I talked obviously about the individualism, consumerism, and customization. That doesn't match who you've been made to be. It doesn't match your identity in Christ. It doesn't match our identity in Christ. Right now, if you're listening to this and you're saying, I'm not a follower of Jesus, well, you've got to pass. This is an in-family discussion. You get to listen in on it and eavesdrop. That might be fun for you. But you're off the hook right now. But if you're a believer, if you say, I belong to Christ, I am his, he is mine, then there's a worthy approach. Now, just in case you get, this can get confusing. You can't make yourself, this isn't making you worthy enough to earn salvation. Only Christ could do that for you. Only his work on the cross, only what he did for you could make you worthy in God's sight. We were unworthy, and, and by his work, he exchanged our sinful um, track record for his perfect obedience. And we get to stand before God clothed in his righteousness, not in our bad track record, which is an amazing transformation and, and transfer and, and a great exchange and an incredible gift. So this isn't about doing enough action so that God deems you worthy. God has already positionally said, this is who you are. You're my child. You are holy and blameless in God's sight. You've been included in his family. You are an heir of all that God means to give you in him. So this is, these things are true already. It's sort of like if a king sent out a knight to find a, 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 um, a homeless man living on the beach Stinking like fish. Now, the knight can play it two ways. He's got a message. He could play it this way. He'd come out and say, hey, the king's got something for you, but you reek. So you get a shower, clean yourself up, get presentable enough for the king, 
And then, when that's all done, come to the castle and find out what the king's, what the king's designs are for you, for you. Well, that might be something the homeless guy might go, oh, I don't want to go. I, you know, I, I, me, the king, I, I, I don't think I can clean myself up enough. I don't think I can get the fish smell off me enough. I don't think if I can ever... Re- he might never go to the castle. The knight might go home and the guy never ever shows up. What if the knight shows up and says, um, step into the carriage, please. And the guy steps in the carriage, reeking of fish, drives him to the castle, walks him through the castle, and then says, um, you are the long-lost heir. You're the prince. Did you know that? You are the prince. All of this is yours. You will inherit all of this because you are royalty. Now, how much more eager is he to get into the shower? That's how Ephesians work. The first three chapters were just a tour of the castle. The last three chapters are like, in light of that, in light of who you are in Christ, in light of who he's made you, how should we live? What would be a worthy way to live in response to who he has made us? So the unworthy approaches of individuals and consumerism and customization don't match who we've made to be. And churches and individuals are sick because of it. The first Corinthians church was literally sick because of it. Sometimes we read this passage when we we take the Lord's table or the Lord's supper or communion, whatever you call it. We take that cup representing his blood and the the symbol of a wafer symbolizing his body. And we often read out of 1 Corinthians. And Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he's actually chastising them for their approach. He says, some of you who are wealthy... So you have this meal together with the bread and the wine. Some of you are wealthy. You come and you bring a whole bunch of food to this, what's supposed to be a love feast. And then the poorer ones come and they have nothing to bring. And so what would look like, like imagine communion, it's sort of like you have wealthy people on one side and they're just feasting. And you have poor people on the other side and they're just sitting there. They have nothing to eat. He ties into them. He said, this is not unity. This is not how the church is supposed to operate. And because of it, some of you are sick. And some of you have even died. You know, it's a scary thing when a church gets off the rails and and all sorts of, uh, you know, sickness starts showing up. But there's a scarier thing than just the church sort of falling apart. In Revelation, Jesus said himself, he he said, you need to fix these things. He's saying this to each of these seven churches he's, that, is, that he's communicating with. You need to fix these things or I will come and remove your lampstand. I mean, it's one thing for a church to fall apart and be ineffective in what they do and do, in division and, and not functioning well and losing, you know, not really shining the light of Jesus into the world. That's a great tragedy. But it's Jesus himself will say, you know what, I'll take your lampstand away if you don't heed what I'm calling you. To do. So I want to give you three prescriptions today to remedy this unworthy approach for churches that are sick and individuals that are sick. So here's the first prescription. A worthy life that matches our calling makes every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Let me read it again. A worthy life that matches your calling makes our calling, makes every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit 
through the bond of peace. So let me just jump back to our text, Ephesians chapter 4. And we read that all together, and that was powerful. I really enjoyed that when we read that together. It's powerful words here. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And here's sort of the first prescription. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, let me just stop there. I think it's very interesting saying to keep the unity. It means there already is a unity established. When Pastor Dave Wicks was up here, he was, he was talking about how uh, earlier in, in uh, I think it's chapter 2, where the wall of hostility has been torn down between the Jews and the Gentiles. This wall of, whether it was racial animosity or spiritual division, it was torn down by God. And he made the two groups one. So this is something God has already done. He's made us one. And what do we have to do? We have to keep that unity. We have to keep that unity. So there's a way in which it's already done. We already have a unity in that God has made us spiritually one. But are we living our lives that reflect that reality? Now there's huge reinforcement in the next verse. It just says, here's all the... The extra ones, right? We have been made one, but there's one body. That's us. We've been made one. There's one spirit. It's not two Holy Spirits. One for you, different one for me. Nope. There's one who's in us. And just as you were called to one hope when you were called, the hope of eternal life, the hope of all that Christ has for us, one Lord, Jesus. There's only one Lord. There's one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He's saying again and again and again, we are one. We're one. We are one. All of this forms a foundation for our unity. So you might think of all the things that divide you from other people, and it's very easy to see those things. You think differently. You act differently. You cheer for a different football team. You vote differently. You... Uh, I like pointing out the fact that we don't agree on everything. And the reason I like pointing it out, in a, especially in this context, is because the miracle is not that we've managed to find a whole bunch of people just like us. The miracle is that God put us in a family with people who are not like us. But that our unity in Christ and what He has made us is greater and supersedes all those lesser identity-forming distinctives. So I love pointing out the fact that we don't think the same. COVID helped us a lot with that. We found that out. Hey, we don't think the same. And what did we do with that? We kept coming back to the fact that God has made us one. God has made us one. So on lesser things, we may disagree. But on the greatest thing, we do agree. And we are united. And that is the thing that should be able to take us through any situation. In our membership class, we talk about what we do with, with uh, our statement of faith. And more than our statement of faith, actually. Um, we say, you know, what, there's an essential... So churches write a statement of faith basically to say, here's the essentials. We agree about these things, right? If you were asked to teach anywhere in the church, you wouldn't teach contrary to anything in the statement of faith. We wouldn't, we wouldn't allow that. Because 
we have to have a playbook of theology or, or, or things we agree with. So if you want to go on our website, you can read our statement of faith. Things about Jesus, things about how to get, become a child of God, uh, all sorts of different things in there. Okay? So it's a basic playbook. So we say, in, we say these are the essentials. And in these essentials, we have unity. We have unity. These are common things we believe about God and about us. And so we, we ask for unity in that. Right? So if you're, ever given a, if you're ever teaching anywhere at Hillcrest Church, you can't teach contrary to those things. But then, what about secondary things? What about things that aren't on that list? Right? So, so I mean on that list would be like, Jesus is the, the divine son of God. That's a pretty basic one. We wouldn't allow you anywhere to teach contrary to that in our church. You say, oh, I think Jesus was just a good man, just a wise teacher. You know, him and Gandhi, both equal. No, it's not an option, right? We need unity in those things, okay? So there are some essentials. But then what about other things? Like, like when is Jesus coming back? And what are the events that precede it? We say, in those things, we haven't come to a definitive, this is our official position. And so in those things, um, there's liberty, so someone might say, well, I know it's going to come back. It's going to happen this way, and th- or I feel it's going to happen this way. Someone else says, I think it's going to happen with this order of things. And we would say, hey, let's, there's liberty to have different views on those things. Even some of the things we teach on in church, we haven't made a definitive statement about them many times. In fact, you'll often find us in our, in our teaching, we'll say, well, some Christians see it this way and some Christians see it this way. So we're giving you a little bit more of the options to sort of understand how you can come at a, a thing from two different ways. And we're, there's liberty to look at it a couple different ways. So in the, in the essentials, we have unity. And in sort of secondary theological things, we have liberty. So you disagree on some of those things. But at the top, you agree. Or we agree. And then the last one is just like, we have opinions about everything. Don't we? Mm, I do. Too many, I think. At least that's what my wife says. Um, so in those things, like these things are not even maybe even uh, spiritual things, right? They might be like, you know, who you should vote for or what you should do about this or that, or right? In those things, we just show charity. We're just kind. Don't have to agree. But we're, we're kind. And so it's, a, it's, how, it's, it's how we maintain u- unity in the body of Christ. Those are some of the family rules that, you know, our members come to realize, and I'm sharing it with all of you so you can, can know about that approach. But when you come back to Paul, he's saying, let's make every effort to maintain this unity. There's a unity, one for us in Christ, and there's a real-time unity that sort of matches it later in. So verse 3 talks about a unity that Christ, we already have. We just need to keep it. We need to have, line up with it. And in verse 13, it talks about attaining to a level of unity. So there's, a, there's sort of a now and not yet. There's a reality that we are united. Christ has made us one. And then there's how does it look like when we're, when we're living it out? So there's a, it's real. It's true. We are one. How can we match that reality with our actions? So that's the first prescription. A worthy life that matches your calling makes every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace and gives us helpful things. Humility is huge, right? If you both, like, um, if you both realize everything we have is because of what Jesus has done for us, 
then it's like there's nobody sort of bragging about who they are, right? Pride divides, but uni- uh, humility unites. Right? So if we should all have a great deal of humility because everything we have came from Christ, not from our own efforts. I mean, spiritually. It all came through. So we should all have a decent amount of humility and, and recognize that uh, we're sinners saved by grace. And it's not a work of our own doing. Paul talks about being rooted and established in love in chapter 3. In fact, he prays that we be rooted and established in love. He says, together with all the saints. I, th- I think that's really cool. I-, I used to read that as a throwaway line. Like, I pray that you be rooted and established in love together with all the saints. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. You know, Paul has long run-on sentences, so I sometimes take phrases out so I can actually understand what he's saying. But I realized I was sort of taking that out because I was sort of saying, yeah, it's nice that he also said that, but, I mean, it's not the, the main part of the verses. But I actually think that together with all the saints is the process by which we go through to have it happen. God is using the people in the church to grow you up in him, to grow us all up in him. Here's this, let me just, uh, number two. A worthy life that matches your calling is centered on serving through the body of Christ. You know the story of Jesus. He's with his 12 disciples just before the last supper. They come in. There's nobody to wash everyone's feet. And so everybody's like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Because that would be admitting that I am the lowest of the group. And so then Jesus does something that he says will be an example for them in how to be a leader in their church, in the church in the future, basically. And he takes off his outer garment and he wraps a towel around his waist and he, he, he washes all their feet and they're all recoiling because that's not how it worked in their culture. And he said, no, this isn't a, I'm not setting up a church where service is what the lowly do. Service is what leadership does. Service is what everyone's called to do. The good thing is God has given you gifts God has given you, this is sort of where individualism actually starts to shine again a little bit because God's made you unique. He's given you a measure of grace. He's given a measure of giftedness. And he's meant for you to use that to bring your unique and best contribution to the church. So a worthy life that matches your calling is centered on serving through the body of Christ. And here's the last one. A worthy life that matches your calling speaks the truth in love. To each other. Speaks the truth in love to each other. One of the New Testament commands is not to let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful to build each other up. We're meant to build each other up with our words. In Hebrews, it talks about, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let's think about that. Let's give some real thought. How can I spur other people on to love and good deeds? How can I do that? A key way to do that is with your words. Like speaking the truth in love can be, be many things. It can be encouragement. You know, when someone's really discouraged, one of the greatest things is to take them back to the first three chapters of Ephesians and tell them who they are again. I can't tell you how many times I've told people who they are again. I can't tell you how many people have told me who I am again. You know what that is? We're just gospeling each other. But Christians need the gospel. It's not just for those who aren't Christians yet. We need the gospel. We need to come back to these foundational realities so that we remember who we are. 
So speaking the truth in love can be great, deep encouragement to say, remember, you're a child of God. Remember, you belong to him. Remember that you're not coming based on your spiritual report card and trying to earn your way to get salvation with God. He's already done that work in your life. Rest in what he's done for you. The other part of it, 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 sometimes speaking the truth in love, is, it, it means uncomfortable truth. Uncomfortable truth where you're like, I'm not talking about like, oh, I love speaking the truth in love because I just got some stuff I got to get off my chest, you know? I got to let off some steam around here. Oh, yeah, I'm glad that's what the church is about because I'm going to do that with a lot of people. No, no, it's for their benefit. It's in love. In fact, the whole passage is bathed in love, in love, in love, in love. It shows up in the entire passage. It's for their benefit that you share something. I mean, it could be small, like, Steve, you have lettuce in your teeth. Before, get that out before you go up to speak. But more than likely, it's coming back to the gospel realities and saying, I want to talk to you about something. It's a hard conversation. It's awkward for me, too, and I love you, and let me, let me express in all the different ways I can how much I am for you. But I think there's something that if you could hear it, it might be helpful, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the risk to share that with you today because I love you. And here it is. So we have a church where we, we keep the unity through our humility and our patience with each other and our love with each other, where we serve, we bring our best contribution with the gifts God has given us. We serve like Jesus, humbly. And then we speak. We speak the truth to love, in love to each other for others' benefit. This is us. This is us. Bathed in love, keeping the unity, bringing your best contribution to serve, speaking the truth so that we become mature. So we can one day, or maybe every day, we can see the work of God in our lives that we are growing up in this body that he's given us to grow up in. I invite the worship team to come back just at this point to sing a last song.